You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Well, I'm uh, glad to be here this morning because I've always been curious about this church and been wanting to come, especially since Sam comes here. And it just never seemed to be working out or we'd forget and uh, just go to our normal church, which is Woodside. And uh, I've heard rumors that you're working your way through the book of Psalms, or various Psalms in that book. And so uh, I was uh, given Psalm 34 to do this morning. And uh, there's a backstory to that Psalm that I think is important that will help put the context of of, uh, some of the things we're going to look at. And first of all, uh, it happened very early. David was quite young when he got this Psalm, when God inspired him to write this. And it happened at a time when uh, it became very clear that Saul was absolutely committed to Psalm as David. Saul was afraid of him, was jealous of him, saw him as a threat to what he wanted to be a dynasty. And uh, so David fled to a town called Nob, which is where the tabernacle was at the time. And there he obtained the sword of Goliath. Goliath was a giant Philistine that he had killed uh, a while earlier. And then from that, once he got the sword, he fled to the city of Gath, which was a Philistine city. Philistines were uh, a group of people that David was famous for killing lots of. And I'm not sure why he thought the Philistine city of Gath would be a great place to go, but he figured, well, Saul's not going to find me there. However, he became a little worried about uh, the reputation because he, when he got there, he realized or heard that, uh, hey, you know who's in town here? David, and he has killed, he's the guy that they sang. Uh, he, David has killed his 10,000s, and guess who the 10,000s were? And so David got pretty nervous, and I don't know why he did this. This seems really uncool to me, but I wasn't there at the time. But he pretends he's insane, and that's the drool run down his beard and starts scribbling on stuff. And the king says, hey, we, we don't need, we got plenty of people. We got enough insane people of our own. Um, we don't want this guy. And so David is able to escape from the city of Gath and escape into the wilderness. And I don't know exactly how long he fled for his life. This is right at the beginning of probably a number of years fleeing for his life from Sam. From, not from Sam, from, <laughs> from Saul, from Saul. And uh, we know that he was 30 when he became king at the end of it all. And he was probably, he's described as a youth or a young man. Youth can be, too, I looked it up in Bauer, Gingrich, and Danker, the, the, no, no, it was Halat, Halat, the uh, Hebrew American lexicon. It can be a young man, could be a youth, and typically you well, not typically, according to the law, given him on Sinai, you became a man to fight at the age of 20. So he's probably somewhere around 19 or 20 when he killed Goliath, but then he might have worked for Saul for a few years. We don't know exactly how many. But the reason that I'm trying to figure this out is that it looks like he fled, he was a fugitive for not just weeks or months, but for a few years at least living in the wilderness, moving from place to place, constantly in hiding. And when people are trying to hunt you down to kill you, that can raise your stress level in life. And you're not really living in the lap of luxury and checking into the Waldorf Astoria each evening at the end of the day. It's quite the opposite. And I want us to realize this when we look at Psalm 34 and some of the things that he 
talks about this. Bottom line is, is the next number of years would be very hard, and this is the context within which Psalm 34 was given to David, the beginning of some very hard years. So uh, in preparation, when I found out it was Psalm 34, I started studying it and reading it through, and eventually I got my notebook out, and I started taking notes. I've got eight pages of notes, this is a, and that's just point form. It's a gold mine. It's a treasure trust chest of good things in Psalm 34. Of course, we don't have time to work our way through the entire treasure chest. Uh, instead, I'm just going to pick out five golden nuggets out of that chest, and we'll look at these this morning. First one would be praise in God's presence, the secret of the presence of God. Secondly would be the joy of reverence. Third is we'll look at every good thing given, because that's one of the things he said that we could have, and David wrote this in the midst of living a pretty rough and wild life, wild in a good sense, as in out in the wilderness. Uh, crushed in spirit, how does that? That can, have, that can be negative, that can have positive consequences, we'll take a look at that, and then guilt gone forever, it's a great way to end the little talk I'm giving this morning, guilt gone forever. So let's dive into the first nugget, praise and the presence of God. And the main idea here is that true, heartfelt thanksgiving and praise is the secret to experiencing the presence of God on a daily basis in your own life. You might wonder, what's the, what's the picture here? That's by Terry Redlin. I like that picture. And it speaks to me of something wholesome and good. Fall, family times, even if you're out there raking leaves, there's something in there that is good and you can thank God for. And I'm just moved to thank God for stuff like that. For in the moment, this is what I'm talking about here, thanking God in the moment. Uh, just as a bit of an aside, for the last several years I've been listening to and specializing and in diving into um, this whole issue of deconversion. Listening to the testimonials of people who once were pastors, youth leaders, worship leaders, full-time missionaries, uh, young people becoming leaders within the church and they just tossed their faith and what were the common denominators and I found they gave, they gave a number of different things that could be condensed down to the six factors. But then I was struck by what they did not talk about. And it didn't hit me until after I'd done the first, all the note taking, condensing it down into six categories and starting to do a video series. It didn't hit me until then. Wait a sec, it's not just what they said were the reasons, it's what they didn't talk about. And one of the things they almost never talked about, with possibly one exception, is that they, they seemed that the experience of the presence of God in their lives on a regular basis was not something they seemed to have experienced. They didn't talk about that. When they talked about Christianity, they talked about all the things they did, going to church, doing this and that, and living by these rules and whatever but the experience of the presence of God did not seem to be there, and I think this Thanksgiving is the key. So, in Psalm, right the first verse, it says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His presence shall continually be in my mouth. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. His praise. So, uh, C.S. Lewis writes about this these experiences he would have from time to time, these moments of ecstasy and extreme joy that he would experience randomly before he became a, a follower of Christ. Uh, he might see a photograph of a distant place or a painting, and there was something about that that, 
that, that it, was, it caused an intense pain, but the kind of pain you wanted to experience more and you wanted to search for and find out what is, what, what is this ecstasy slash pain. It was so powerful. And uh, he found that it wasn't in the thing itself, but there was something beyond that. And eventually he found that this, this joy, these moments of extreme joy, were actually tastes and, for, and just aroma of God, little bits and pieces that he sprinkled throughout this world. And when I realized that in my own life, as I read that, I thought, I'm going to thank God for those little moments of ecstasy that I might experience when I, for example, last night went out for a walk before I went to bed. And uh, where I live, it's in the country, and it's overlooking the Conestoga River, and there was mist rising off the river, and the moon was right up there, and it was so quiet and peaceful. There was a dark forest on the other side. And for, if, I, if I tried, not too hard, I could imagine what it would be like to live in a world that has never known evil and suffering. And I know that someday I'm going to be there. All are going to be there. And I thank God in the moment. In the moment, you thank God for these things. Not later on at the end of the week, but right there in an experience for my life, one of the major milestones in my life, in my spiritual walk with God, is the discovery of continual ongoing thanksgiving and how that seems to be the secret that God just moves right in, puts his arm around you, and the two of you enjoy whatever it was together. Little blessings spread throughout the day. So I would do it graphically like this. So there's God at the top there, and God is the one from whom every good thing and every perfect gift comes. All these little blessings. We're not talking about just massive things like inheriting $50 million from an uncle you didn't even know you had. That hardly ever happens. In fact, in my life, I have no prospects of that happening. But um, I'm talking about the little things, the little things. Mm, like uh, the, the tang of a piece of... California reaper pepper in that cream salmon that Patty made, uh, the plumage on a bird, the moon rising over the misty valley. There's little things throughout the day. So God gives you these blessings, and there's the gift, and these gift causes moments of pleasure for some small blessing. To who? To you. So you enjoy the gift. And most of the time, I think we enjoy the gift, but you need to complete the gift, and that is to look beyond the gift to the giver in praise and thanksgiving. And I have found that at that moment, when I look, well, I'm enjoying the gift, but then when I look beyond the gift, there's God, almost like standing there smiling because he's given me a little blessing and he sees Kirk's really enjoying that, but it really doesn't get amazing until you turn to God and say, thank you for that. And it's just like, you know, allegorically speaking, he just, maybe not really allegorically, because spiritually it does seem that way. His presence becomes strong in the moment. So I would suggest this is enormously important. The secret to experiencing the regular presence of God on a daily basis is to begin the practice of thanksgiving and praise to God for all the tiny little pleasures that he might sprinkle in your path each day, even if it's just one or two. Keep in mind, when David wrote this about praising God, it was in the context of a very hard life. Nugget number two, the joy of reverence for God. Main point here is that there's an undefeatable security, protection, and joy in a deep-seated reverence and awe for God. That's the key point here. So let's see what Psalm 34 says about that. 
It says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. I remember one time uh, David's fleeing for his life. Saul's army's coming around this side of the mountain. David's moving the other side of the mountain. And, uh, you know, I can't say you really in adrenaline times when you, it looks like you're going to get killed and they're close afternoon. Um, I know there's a bit of an adrenaline rush, but it's not my idea of just a wonderful afternoon. But yet, this is written within the context of David fleeing for his life, and we have to remember this. Real life is kind of like sometimes, there are times in real life when it really is hard, and the stress level can be very high. And we've got to remember that the Christian life, walking with God, is not always wonderful, misty nights with steam rising off the river and the moon hanging over the dark forest. It's not all like that. And within that context, we can know that somehow, some way, the angel of the Lord is with me if I fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord is a big thing. Later on in the psalm, just verse 9, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. And I, a lot of people get mixed up or misunderstood misunderstand what the word fear means. We think about it in our own 21st century culture. But again, um, sorry, I keep putting BDAG down there. It's halat. That's the Hebrew, Aramaic <laughs> lexicon of the Old Testament. Fear means to tremble for or to honor. That's what, he's, that's what it means in the context of these verses. It means that there is a being. To even think of that being causes an, a trembling in awe at the thought of that being who is God himself, creator of the universe, the laws of physics, the origin of every good thing given, every perfect gift. This is the being that we, we don't, it's, well anyways, this is what I would describe as reverence for God. This is what he's really talking about here, reverence for God, that trembling for God, that great honor, that enormous honor. So here's a question. What are the indications of a, just shout it, a deep-seated reverence for God? Any ideas? Just shout it out. What are the indications of a true deep-seated reverence for God? I'm springing this on you. I realize you haven't had weeks to think about this like I did. But Okay, got you thinking, at least. But I know there's lots of good answers out there. And that's what I really like about the small group Bible studies, where it's a little easier to uh, say things like that. What are the indications? And I th as I thought about this, and this is just my, my little perspective here, if, you know, I'm sure that if we pooled all of this, we would have an, a more deeper, richer idea of what an indications are. But for me, it's a personal, it's, the, it's, the, it's personal, spontaneous, and unrestrained worship of God life as your creator, your redeemer. It's personal. It's not like something that just happens, okay, it's Sunday morning worship, I better, you know. No, it's spontaneous throughout the week, and it's unrestrained, that is. And, and so for me, unrestrained, what that means is that I, I really do like to go outside just before going to bed, because it's, it's peaceful then. Out in the country, at least, it's peaceful. Maybe not in the, in the town or city, but out there, it's peaceful. And that's when I have my best times with God. Or early in the morning, I'll go out for a prayer walk and just pray and talk to God as I'm walking. And uh, there are times where, you know, it's just, I just got to tremble before the Lord God Almighty. 
because he loves me. And he's the, he is, there, you cannot possibly over-describe. There is no possibility of hyperbole when you're talking about how amazing and how good God is. It's not possible. He is beyond whatever human imaginations have ever been capable of. This is the God who has created us. So this is an indication of a true deep-seated worship for God. And how do we do that? How does that happen in our life? Um, just before I give you some possible suggestions, let's look at symptoms of a lack of reverence for God. Because sometimes it's, if it says, you know, this is a good thing, you really don't appreciate the definition as well as if you have an example of a, the opposite, the bad thing. So Nadab and Abihu were two sons of Aaron, and they took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now let's pause there. He, God had given a very specific recipe for incense that was to be burned in the tabernacle. It was exactly this much of this, that much of that, and so forth, and you mix those together, and that recipe was only to be used in the presence of God within the tabernacle. No one else was to use it for anything else. Command of the incense burned in the tabernacle it was to be only that. So he'd already given that command, and within that context, they offered a different kind of incense, probably a different recipe. Maybe they, you know, this one's pretty good or whatever. It says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. Now, fortunately, God, it seems there's some, a number of these incidents in the scriptures, and they only happen once, and they emphasize a particular point, and for the lessons of all humanity from then on, because probably I wouldn't be here this morning <laughs> otherwise if this happened every time we showed a lack of reverence for the Lord. Um, but, so what do we, what's the takeaway here? What two or three applications do you see? Now, there's a couple of possible applications. One is that well, they had heard the command, they knew what it was, but you know, they had just had a relaxed attitude to what God had said, this is the way I want things done. A relaxed attitude towards God's command. So ask yourself, do I have a relaxed attitude to the, what God has said in his word? It's easy to have a relaxed attitude because we live in a culture today that is constantly and relentlessly programming you to conform to the culture. We don't want to stick out like sore thumbs, we want to get along with people. We don't, we don't want to be uncool, so to speak. Um, it, and, and, we, and that shaping happens subconsciously throughout the day, every day, week after week, and year after year. And so it's easy within, as the culture begins to depart from the righteousness and the purity of God, it's easy to, because we're being, we often are exposed more to culture than we are to the scriptures each, each week, to be heavily pulled and get a relaxed attitude towards the commands of God. Or maybe they just had a, they kind of reinter a loose interpretation of what that recipe was. Like, I know this is this and that, but you know, you know, there's, God will cut a slack here. It's not act exactly like we need to do it exactly this way. Let's do it you know, some other way. We'll just have more of a loose interpretation, maybe more freedom in how we're going to interpret this. Maybe we'll come up with a new system of hermeneutics, so to speak, where, uh, you know, we can comply better with what culture wants. In this case, I don't know if it was a cultural thing with the, I don't know what kind of incense it was, but it was not the right kind. 
And so an indication of a lack of reverence for God is interpreting the Bible to say what you want it to say. It could also be the lack of spontaneous worship in your life or relaxed attitude towards sin. And there is enormous pressure today. I've been dialoguing with a fellow now, for, former pastor for several months who's just really, really f taken a left turn, fallen off the wagon, so to speak. Fallen off the wagon, yeah. That's used in other contexts as well. But what I mean is that it is... Um, I think what we need to do, and it's going to come up a little bit uh, more here, is that we need to cultivate a reverence for God, and the best way to do that is get to know God. You don't make up a reverence for God. I'm not making up a, a being impressed with the Rocky Mountains if I've never seen them. But when I actually am there and I actually see the Rockies, I don't have to make up being impressed with the Rockies. It happens, and it's the same with a reverence for God. We need to pursue the walking with God, knowing God. And here's one thing about God is helpful to know. Third nugget, every good thing. The key to experiencing all the good things of the Lord is to seek Him. As you seek God, you will become naturally more in awe of Him. And at the same time, you will start to experience the every good thing that comes from God. So let's dive into this a little more carefully. In verse 10 of Psalm 34, it says this, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Uh, keep in mind, he's writing this in the context of some very hard years. And so what are these good things? Is it massive piles of cash? Is that, like, is that one of the things that God gives us? Well, he might bless you with that, but I think we're, it, when we're talking about the goodness of the, of the Lord, we're talking about something else. Is it fame so that when you walk down, I, I've seen in the news, uh, what's her name, Taylor Swift, Seattle, like the people are just going, it's unbelievable. Like, how could you possibly adulate a person to that degree? You know, you might, I mean, there are singers I really appreciate, and I like the music because of the, the lyrics, the, the arrangements of the songs and so forth. But um, that, if you want that adulation, I would say that's a red flag. That's the opposite of reverence for God. It's, it's the opposite of standing in awe of God. You want people to stand in awe of you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about every good thing. So what is that? Well, there's a verse in, first, in James chapter 1, verse 17. It's one of my favorite descriptions of God. When I'm talking to people about God this now in our culture, I actually have to explain what I mean by that. Uh, two days ago, I read uh, a guy posted on, a, on one of the forums that I'm, in, I'm part of online. And he said, uh, he seemed to make a very sincere guy, but he said, why would I want to worship God? Well, what would possibly good would it do for me? Let's, let's think about that. What, why would you want to worship God? Here is why. Now let's dive into this. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. One of my favorite titles for God is the Father of lights. There is so much embedded in that. It's kind of thrilling just to roll that around in your mind, Father of lights. But Note that it says, every good thing given and every perfect gift. What are all the things in your life that you have experienced that were good? Now you might say, well, this activity was good, but what was it about the activity that was good? Say, raking leaves on a crisp fall evening, 
autumn evening with your, with your kids. What about that was good? And when you start to dig down into all the good things that you've experienced in life and say, what about that was good? Then you, become to the, you come to the basic pleasures, the basic joys and the basic good things. In uh, C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, there's a senior demon. It's a kind of like a, a back and forth. You know, the senior demon's training the junior demon on how to sideline this guy over here. But one of the things that senior demon says, we have never been successful in inventing a pleasure. And he refers to God as the only one who has ever invented pleasure. He says, all we can do is get people to use them in the wrong way at the wrong time, to twist them, to abuse them, and so forth. So you'll see a lot of pleasures in life, but there's a lot of them have a, a pure pleasure that's been twisted or misused. So when you think about this, let's say beauty. I, I'm a, I love nature photography. I love being in nature. I love the beauty of nature. But God is the origin of beauty. That's what it's saying here. The, every good thing comes from God. He is not just the origin of beauty. He is beauty. So if God were to walk into this room right now, you would see beauty personified in such a magnitude we couldn't survive in the presence of such unbridled, unveiled beauty. Uh, if you think you could, just imagine all the beauty in the universe condensed into but one cubic meter and sitting on right there on the floor. If you've been, if you've just not known how to respond to a gorgeous sunset, what about a million sunsets on a million planets? And then all those other things out there that are just so gorgeous and beautiful. And all of that is only from God. But God is beauty. He is love. He is love. He's not just a God who loves. He is the origin of love. He's the origin of peace, of power. He's the origin of music. He is music personified. He is the origin of art, the origin of every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights. So what is in it for you? To, what could possibly be better than to know the being who is the origin of every good thing given and every perfect gift? That's what's in it for you. And that's what's in it for that fellow who posted that online. This statement by Jesus Christ takes on a whole new meaning. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Know you, like knowing a person is eternal life. Well, when you find out who that person is, that he is the origin of every good thing given and every perfect gift, he is those things. He is, it says, basically, it has not entered the heart of humanity what God has prepared for us, and no one can see the face of God in our mortal forms and live. The amount of beauty and love and honor and power and justice is just way beyond our ability and our mortal bodies to handle. But what could possibly be better? Because every good thing you could ever want is summed up in God. Application. If the secret to not lacking any good thing, all of which God is, is to seek God, then how do we seek God? And I'll just give you three ideas. These are major milestones in my life. Uh, and you might say, oh, three ideas, you can cover that in 30 seconds. Yeah, about 30 seconds, sum up three major. One is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. As he actually meant when he said that. And it was only about three or four years ago, it crossed my mind one day quite 
emphatically that I had lived my life assuming that I understood what he meant with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And suddenly I was brought face to face with, my, with the hubris of that. What? I actually think I fully comprehend the, the extent of what he meant when he says, love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and I instantly turned to God. I confessed, Lord, I have, I have been approaching this on my own understanding. I am so sorry. From now on, I want you to take me on this road that leads me closer and closer. And I realize it's a road. It's a high, it goes ever higher up and further in so that I will come closer to loving you with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind in the way you fully meant when you said that. And when I began to pray that on a daily basis, wow. I mean, inside, I still look like Kirk Durst and I'm still getting older. But in the inside, it has made enormous difference in my life. So that's one way and to seek God is to love him. Another way is daily spontaneous thanksgiving, continual thanksgiving as I already talked about. And then satisfying daily devotions. Satisfying daily devotions. Get a comfy chair, good cup of coffee in a place that you can really enjoy and just spend time with the one who is the father of lights. It's been 60 years now since my mother got me started on daily devotions. And I, I really look forward to I mean, we're talking 60 years. I've read the Bible through a ton of times. And I just love it more and more. I'm seeing more. In fact, it's getting almost ridiculous because I see so much now per session often. In the old days, I'd struggle. When I first started, I'd work hard to find one thing I can learn. And now it's... I'm hardly going to get through what I want to read today because there's so many interesting things here and correlations that you see more and more of throughout the years. Fourth nugget, crushed in spirit. The presence of God is near to those who have totally surrendered to him, abandoning all human pride and exaltation. And I'm suggesting that a good type of being crushed in spirit is the kind where you abandon all human pride and exaltation in yourself. So in Psalm 34, verses 17 and 19, we read this. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. Now, keep in mind, he's got a lot, a ton coming his way, and he's already in them. But the Lord is near the brokenhearted, and he saves those that are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many of them. Uh, but the Lord, the people, the people who love God. So he's not saying it's going to be a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. You'll never get sick. You'll be stinking rich all the time. You'll just be laying awake at night trying to figure out how you can spend your money. It's not saying all that. He's saying there's going to be, this is real life you're in, but in this question of real life, there is something that should be slowly smashing your human pride in yourself and exaltation and blooming into a reverence for God tying it back to what we read earlier. So additional insight here, Jesus in, his, in uh, the Beatitudes said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And to contrast that, I think of Proverbs 16, it says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Abomination. He uses that term only a few times in the Old Testament. And when he uses it, he's referring to when a human being has become something that God never intended that person to be. It's actually very destructive, and they're going in the opposite direction of achieving what God had created them to be. So that's the contrast here. So what are the signs of being proud in heart? 
Think about that. How do you know if you're proud in heart? It's, it's worth thinking about, but it's, it's probably not that productive to just think about it. It's a better idea to ask God because I'm not very good at seeing my own uh, shortfalls, my own pride of hearts. And pride is something that probably is like a snake with many heads. You think you nail one head and another one rears itself up over here. We may have to deal with that over the course of our life. But the question is, what is the difference between brokenhearted and crushed in spirit in a positive way versus a negative way? So if it's if it's crushed in spirit, if, you, if your self-worth and significance is based on yourself and pride is all woven into that, when you become crushed and broken, your self-worth is destroyed, your significance is destroyed. That's not very positive, that's negative. But on the other hand, if your self-worth and significance is in the love of God and the fact that He loves you beyond your ability to even comprehend, that's what it's based on, then the net thing we really need to get rid of is pride. And this is where God will, from time to time, allow these events in our life to crush us in spirit, to crush pride, another assault on one of those snakeheads rearing its life in our life. So I'm suggesting here that pride is the defining difference between a positive being crushed in spirit and a negative one. To live daily in proper humility in the presence of God, one must be walking on a road and I think it is a road, it's not a quantum change. Oh, I'm not proud anymore. How about that? No, it's not like that. One must be walking on a road in which you are increasingly coming to know God. The more closer you draw near to God, the more you will experience the diminishing the diminishment of pride. You see, you don't say, I'm gonna be humble, okay, let me what are the characteristics here? I'm gonna work real hard on it. No, no. If you want to be humble, if you think you're really good at sprinting, for example, go to the Rockies and try and sprint up 1,000 meters of vertical. Just try and do that in a sprint. The, the mountain itself humbles you, you see. And it's like, this is like God. The closer you draw near to God, the more vast and amazing you see God is and the more laughable you see your own human pride. The more you want nothing to do with it, even though it keeps sneaking back, the old nature will be with us until the end, till our, till our um, mortal death. And then finally we're released from that. Last nugget, guilt wiped clean forever. The main point here is if you have been redeemed by Christ, you are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So in Psalm 34, it says a couple of things about this. It says that their faces will never be ashamed and the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And that word condemned, whoops, <laughs> sorry about the B-dag, it's a lot. To pay, to suffer for one's guilt. You will never have to pay the price for your moral failures. You will never have to face the guilt, it has been removed. To be redeemed by God himself means that he's bought you from those things. He's bought you back into freedom. And the price is, well, you, in one sense it's infinite. It's more than sufficient, it's total. You, he's not just forgiven you for your sins, he's redeemed you out of that situation where you have to live with guilt. Now, the poster boy for evil in the Bible is probably King Manasseh, and he did a lot of bad stuff. Erected pagan altars in the temple, worshipped the stars, Baal and Asherah, put an idol for Asherah in the temple. He sacrificed his son as a burnt offering to Baal, killed so many innocent people 
that he filled, it says he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He did more evil than the original Amorites. And that, that's a big, that's quite an accomplishment. He was even worse than the Amorites. And he, then probably the biggest thing of all, at least for me, is to lead other people into sin. Bad enough that I did it. But if I led thousands and tens of thousands, ah, like how he led all Judah into sin. He was captured with hooks and imprisoned in Babylon. And while he was there, it says, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And then you, if you continue to read that, it's a bunch of good things he does after, after he's, he's come to know God. He's come to know that the Lord is God. So I, I just, uh, it grieves me when I see people who say I'm too sinful. God could never forgive me for this or that. Have you actually exceeded the sins of Manasseh? I mean, I know that people, for example, in our culture today may have had an abortion and they, they grieve over that. But if Manasseh killed hundreds or thousands, that can be redeemed. You can actually live free and blameless and holy and beyond reproach. I don't know what it is in your life that's really bad. We don't need to have any volunteer announcements of what that might be. You know. But that's not the way God wants you to live. You underestimate the redemption price that Jesus paid when you continue to flagellate yourself with the things that you've done in your past. It says, if you have been redeemed, all is forgiven. You have, well, in fact, I want to close with this verse. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, I've done bad things and against other people and they have forgiven me, but I wouldn't exactly feel holy just because the person forgave me. Um, I certainly don't feel very blameless. I mean, how can I not feel... I mean, I did that, and I did it against somebody else. And, you know, I mean, that's a fact, a historical fact, but God says the redemption price he paid for you is so unbelievably incomprehensibly beyond what you could even imagine that you actually are blameless now for all the things that you've ever done. You're blameless. You can't be blamed for those things anymore. There was a time when you would have to take the blame, but he has now borne our sins for us. Now look at this last one, beyond reproach. When I think of all the things you know, I've said and done over the course of my life that hurt other people. Ah, like, I, beyond reproach is not a word I'd use for Kirk Durston. Not with people, but with God. With God, you can be beyond reproach if you have accepted the gift of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Beyond reproach. I mean, let that mull over in your mind over the next week. And so with all this in mind, I'll wrap it up here and uh, turn it back to whatever happens next.